This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is all theater. It's all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is political theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jim Saxa, filling in for Jason Dick, who is off this week. Okay, I know what you're thinking. It's the Democratic National Convention, and this is political theater. How could Jason take off this week of all weeks? Well, first off, come on. We all deserve a break every now and again. So let's stop with the vacation shaming. There is some real toxic workaholic nonsense there. Secondly, and way more importantly, this DNC might not really matter. We just don't know yet because it's unlike all those that came before it. I know, I know, it's a trope that every election is unlike all those that came before it, and that pundits who say that also have to say, but no, this time it's true. But no, this time it is really true thanks to the coronavirus. The DNC this year is completely virtual. That means no cheering crowds. No rousing speeches with the big applause lines. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. And no balloon drops. But it also means no booing protesters. At least not in person. Still, some things remain the same. We already know this convention has awkward jokes, a bunch of weird regional pride on display, and lots of Bruce Springsteen. But does any of this matter? To help us find out, we've asked Julia Trusso, who is covering the 2020 presidential election for the Philadelphia Inquirer, to join us. We'll also ask her about the state of the race in the Keystone State. Julia, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jim. Thanks so much. So first off, you just got back from vacation in Rhode Island, but you didn't mention anything on Instagram about it being the Calamari comeback state. So what gives there? <laughs> It's true. I I regret not trying some calamari. Although one thing that wasn't really explained was if there was a comeback, was there an issue with it before? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> but Rhode Island was beautiful. It's a great state. So let's talk about this convention. It's pretty different. We know it's pretty different from the past ones. So I guess we should talk about the last one first. Mm -hmm. It was in Philly. We were both there and covering it. I remember thinking the convention was kind of ridiculous. It was corny and cheesy and mostly pointless, it seemed, but it was also kind of inspiring to see democracy in action and all these thousands of people coming together to support their party. And it felt like a really massive tailgate for the Eagles to me, right? Like right down to the <laughs> fact that nearly half the people there wanted a different starting QB for their team. So what was your take? Definitely. It was a blast to cover because 2016, I think it had both kind of the spectacle of convention and also some news given how upset Bernie Sanders supporters were. 
I remember I would get dressed in a dress and heels knowing I'd be inside the convention hall and then I'd have a gaff mask and sneakers in my backpack to cover the protests outside. So it was just kind of a, a really lively and exciting combination of things. Like you said, it was hokey, but I miss kind of like the creative signs and the state pride, although that was on display in that virtual roll call you alluded to. So I guess the big common thread there is a gas mask that we're constantly wearing. <laughs> so this year it's like obviously different. We're two nights in out of four total. What are your big takeaways so far? And what do you think we'll see going forward? I think my biggest takeaway is, yes, of course, this is awkward. But for what it is, I think they're pulling it off. Conventions in recent years have been big pep rallies meant to elevate the party leaders. This one is just even more canned and pre-produced. A pro would be shorter speeches. And I think because of the format, having these soundbite kind of moments make them easier to share on social media. So I think there's a chance of them getting more recirculation for these moments. The con is just there's no, none of that feeling in the convention hall of the roar of the crowd, of the emotion. I mean, I remember watching Hillary Clinton give her acceptance speech in Philadelphia. It was there was weeping happening, although I will say when Michelle Obama finished her speech on Monday night and they they switched the view to images of pixelated people watching on their couches cheering on Zoom. There were quite a few people in tears, so uh, maybe the emotion was there. We just couldn't see it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. There's something about seeing a performance live, even if it's a taped performance live, that has that emotional bond with the crowd that you just really can't get with this. The original purpose of conventions, we, we don't really care about anymore, right? It used to be this is when the platform was decided. No one cares about platforms anymore. The last time there was any doubt who the nominee might be was 1980. It does seem like the, the infomercial aspect of this was really emphasized last night with the roll call. I thought, and I want to know your your thoughts, that it worked. It, it felt like close to 57 back-to-back 30-second ads for Joe Biden <laughs> and the Democratic Party. What were your thoughts about it? I kind of loved it. It could be that we're all stuck inside and largely unable to travel, but it was like this great love letter to America. I do think one of the most fun parts of a convention, a live in-person convention, is this the state pride, you know, like the Wisconsin delegation wearing hats with blocks of cheese on them and the New York delegates dressed as the Statue of Liberty. So you, you got a taste of that with the roll call. And while a lot of the people featured actually announcing how where their votes were going, while a lot of those people were elected officials, many were kind of more regular average people, which is something I think the Democrats are really clearly trying to highlight in this convention. And that made it a little more fun. Those folks were more fun to watch. <laughs> Absolutely. One thing I, I was disappointed in was Pennsylvania. <laughs> I didn't say it. I didn't want to criticize my own hometown senator, but he was a little stiff. Well, Bob Casey was never known for his charisma, right? <laughs> but yeah, just talking in front of Joe Biden's childhood home in Scranton. They missed the opportunity to, I don't know, do something a little bit more lively. Maybe, maybe working gritty somehow. Who knows? Mm. A lot of what we saw last night and the night prior was uh, these personal stories about how much of a mensch Joe Biden is. He's 
the regular Joe's Joe. The person who officially nominated him was an elevator operator. And that's an obvious contrast to Donald Trump, who, you know, they've been subtly painting as basically a sociopath. <laughs> my, my question is, do you think it's working? And do you think it would be more effective in person? I think it is working. I mean, I'll say that I think both of these conventions, the audience is the base. I don't know how many undecided voters are tuning in, you know, from nine to 10 online and then 10 to 11 on a network. But I think that the message that, you know, Biden is really good with real people is, is more than a message. Back when campaigning was in person, I followed him on the campaign trail and he would I think consistently, you know, give whatever speech he was going to give, often have a couple fumbles or just kind of awkward turns of phrase that you could almost predict the clip that the Trump campaign would make out of it. And then it was on the rope line, the selfie line, where he really did genuinely bond with with people. And, and I think that's what the campaign has has to showcase in the convention. A lot of the folks I've talked to who meet him at even these more recent kind of small campaign events have said that they find him really empathetic. And a lot of them were I'm now seeing on the convention, uh, <laughs> you know, stage or screen. Yeah, I want to actually ask you specifically about that. We've seen a lot of Pennsylvanians over the first two nights, and we'll talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of them, uh, Scott Richardson, you've interviewed him before the DNC. Tell us, uh, how did he wind up on national television? I was covering a roundtable discussion with Biden and four small business owners a couple months ago. And Scott Richardson was one of these four small business owners. He owns a catering company in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. It was kind of an awkward event. Everyone had masks on and they were seated like 10 feet away from each other, kind of having to yell a little bit to communicate. He talked with Biden at this event about how his small business had been hurting, how he didn't feel like there was any guidance from the federal government. He also um, said that he voted for Trump in 2016, but would be reversing that this time around. And afterward, I, I went up to him and I asked, like, you know, how did how did they find you? And he said, I have no idea. You know, he wasn't really a guy that was like waving the banner for Biden, but he did this event with him. And then um, in the first 10 minutes of night one of the Democratic National Convention, he was on screen. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm just frustrated. Uh... I don't understand how we got here. So that's Scott Richardson from Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. In Delco, Delaware County, which only went, you know, fully blue for the first time in what, a century uh, in 2018? Yeah. You know, the one other thing I'll say is you asked kind of to what extent is this effective for in-person versus not. I do think that being able to produce these moments which are based in authenticity actually allows the, the campaign to kind of highlight them and take some of the pressure off of Biden to speechify the whole time, which isn't necessarily his strength, although we'll see how he does on Thursday. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Biden, going back since his first presidential run in 88, has been known for his speech gaffes. Television's a really intimate medium, right? And he, they can really emphasize the one-on-one -on -one stuff by using all of this well-produced sort of pieces that they put together. So 
this convention and Biden's campaign in general has been pretty Pennsylvania centric. The campaign is headquartered in Philly. Joe Biden's wife, Jill, Dr. Jill, repeatedly touts uh, the fact that she's from there. Her Willow Grove accent was on full display last night. And the vice president, you know, they don't let it go very long without mentioning that he grew up in Scranton. And since the pandemic started, almost all of the few campaign events that they've done have been in the greater Delaware Valley area. So you've gotten to see a lot of that. You've also been following the different changes in the voter demographics there in Pennsylvania and talking to Trump voters. So what is your take on the state of the race in Pennsylvania right now? I think there's two things that I'm noticing at the same time. If you look at the polls in Pennsylvania, Biden is up between, I think it's six and 10 points on Trump. Those Democratic strongholds in the state, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, you mentioned Delaware County, have seen a real increase in Democratic registrations. The protests since the killing of George Floyd have energized folks, maybe even some progressives who are pretty unenthused about Biden, but who are getting more politically active in this moment. That's all really good news for Democrats and for Biden in Pennsylvania. Then there's another through line that I'm kind of paying attention to, which is Pennsylvania is older, whiter and less college educated than the nation as a whole. And, and that's a base that showed up heavily for Trump in 2016 that helped him win Pennsylvania. You know, when you look statewide, there's a lot of counties and small towns that look like that where Republican registration has really increased. So statewide, Republicans have added about five times the number of voters to their rolls as have Democrats since 2016. While Democrats still have the voter registration edge in Pennsylvania, it's it's down from where it was. And obviously in 2016, Trump still won with, with that playing field. So, you know, you kind of ask, okay, are those just moderate Democrats who finally made it official and joined the Republican Party who've been voting that way for a while? Or is that Trump solidifying and growing his base in areas like around Scranton, Biden's hometown, that could really make a difference for him in the state, which he won by, you know, as we know, about 44,000 votes? And what I picked up last night and the night before uh, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. There are two big groups that Biden in particular was trying to talk to. And I think one was the moderate Democrats who might be willing to come back to voting for Joe after voting for Trump. And the Black Lives Matter supporters and you know black voters in general. There's a lot of focus on race monday night particularly and a lot of appeals to moderate republicans frankly yeah. john Kasich and uh, christy todd whitman there seemed to be a little bit less although still prominent of the appeals to the left and considering that you said earlier and i agree with this that this is something that's really being watched by the base how effective do you think the campaign is has been so far and sort of trying to weave together those three disparate groups. Anytime you try to show how big your tent is, <laughs> my opinion is it's going to be the, the progressive wing who kind of feels the most slighted by that. Because the, their whole mission is, you know, let's not take these 
slow and steady steps that everyone's comfortable with, you know, let's make actual changes. So I do think if there's a group, and I think some people have expressed this frustrated that AOC only got a minute, that doesn't feel as included. It's it's the more progressive wing. But I do think that on the whole, they've done a pretty good job of kind of trying to work in all of those constituencies. You know, last night started with this kind of unconventional keynote address with like 17 younger up and coming Democrats, a lot of them more progressive. I don't know how effective that was, frankly, because you kind of fractured what is usually one speech into 17 parts. (laughs) But it it did give a lot of lesser known people kind of a a brief moment in the spotlight. I wanted to talk about uh, the keynote a bit. Once again, three Pennsylvanians were in it. A lot of Pennsylvania representation. Rep Brendan Boyle, State Rep Malcolm Kenyatta and Representative Connor Lamb. But what really interested me about this, I felt like Boyle had some whatever lines. Malcolm Kenyatta was just being himself, essentially, which is a poor black kid from North Philly who's done well, right? But Connor Lamb interested me because, you know, he ran in a special election in, in 2018. It was a harbinger of the blue wave we saw that November. He won in a R plus 20 district, defeated three-term Republican representative Keith Rothfuss. That was a district that, you know, had existed in 2016, would have backed Trump by two points. And in both those races, Lamb ran a hyper-local race, trying to avoid referendums on the national parties and on the president. This year... Lamb is starting to take shots at the president. And he had a point in line in that mashup Keystone speech. He said, basically, while, while working, working families, families are struggling, struggling, he's looking out for the people who are already doing just fine. The wealthy. The wealthy. The donors to his campaign. That seems like a big shift. Do you think that's a, a big risk? I think there's a logic there. It suggests that he really thinks there's enough people out there frustrated with Trump and his district that that's the strategy to go with. And he's probably the best barometer for that. I do think where it gets trickier is issues, which we don't hear a lot about in the convention. I I don't think you're going to hear him talking too much about like Biden and fracking. There are some issues where that big party tent really is a little more divided. So one of the big things that conventions do every year uh, usually is fire up the base. It's a big launch party, right? I know that Joe Biden Zoomed with PA delegates on Tuesday and you (laughs) talked with some of them afterwards. How's that working out? Are they virtually fired up? (laughs) Being a delegate is very weird right now. I feel kind of bad for them because community leaders and activists who are who are, were just really involved in these campaigns and who are just like really jazzed to go to a convention this year the in-person aspect is just all scrapped i think that really hurts the delegates more than anyone pennsylvania delegates this year they i mean they voted online weeks ago they officially submitted their their delegate votes i talked to a couple of delegates who told me they received in the mail kind of symbolic 
uh, credentials that would normally get you into the convention hall. And then, yes, to your point, typically a state delegation will meet for morning breakfasts every day. The P Pennsylvania delegation has a morning Zoom call every day. Biden joined a Zoom call and it was basically Senator Bob Casey introduced him as a son of Scranton and then Biden thanked them all and he said, obviously, I'm from Scranton. I married a Philly girl. Pennsylvania has been part of my soul, he said. He said, you're the key for who will be the next president of the United States. And I did look to see what he told the Florida delegation right after, and he was not that explicit with that. But I, I don't I don't know how fired up the delegates feel. I mean, they're they're watching at home like the rest of us with their signs, and I'm sure it's neat to be able to pull up their laptop and see Vice President Biden there, but it's it's not, it's nowhere near the same. A Zoom party isn't a, a real party. <laughs> it was and at like four o'clock in the afternoon, you know. Next week, Republicans will hold their convention. And, you know, their original plan was to hold it in person in North Carolina, despite the pandemic, but the governor put the kibosh on that, basically. And so they were going to move to Florida, and then Florida had that really bad coronavirus surge, probably because they don't have strong social distancing rules, but that's a different topic. So now their convention is going to be all virtual, too. Do you think that going second will help them because they'll be able to see what the DNC did or are they behind the eight ball because they're sort of scrambling to make this happen and on top of that who does going virtual help or hurt more the Republicans or the Democrats here I think it's favorable to Democrats to go first but that said I think kind of the convention spectacle even in the traditional format has always somewhat favored Democrats because they traditionally have more entertainers they can roll out. They have more connections with Hollywood. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is hosting on Thursday. And I do think that that kind of celebrity helps even more when you're, when you're all virtual. Like I said earlier, I do think these things are largely created for the base. So what works and doesn't work on one side may do the same for the other side. Final question here. I guess a final question for you is, what do you expect to see on the final two nights with this convention? I'm definitely looking forward to Kamala Harris's speech. It'll be a historic one for a, a convention. I am curious to see how, how Biden does on Thursday. When I was on the campaign trail, I saw a lot of speeches that went okay, a lot of speeches that went not so great. And I thought he really shined in um, South Carolina when he won the primary. It was one of his strongest speeches. So if he does something like that again, I think it could really help him, especially given all of the ads Trump has rolling out. And in terms of the content of that speech, I'm, I'm curious what signals in there he gives to all of those different bases in Pennsylvania, which I think do kind of represent the the various bases he needs across the United States. Well, I think that's a good line to end on. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, you can follow her on Twitter. It's at Julia Teruso. And you can read her great reporting by subscribing to the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's just four bucks a week for a digital subscription. That'll do it for this edition of Political Theater. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jim Saxa and Jason Dick will be back next week. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you do that. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jules. <laughs>